0: Hello, and thank you for listening to True Crime Cam, out of all the other true crime podcasts out there. If you want to support this podcast, please tap those five little stars on Spotify or leave a review on iTunes. It really, really helps. Thank you. Before we get into this week's episode, I do want to give you all a warning because these murders are extremely gruesome and there are graphic details, and it involves children. All right, now that you've been warned, here we go. In 1987, the small town of Ina in southern Illinois had a population of just 460 people. It's one of the seven villages making up Jefferson County as a whole, with a total population of 37,000. In those past two years, the county suffered more than its fair share of murders, 15 to be exact. The community was hit hardest at first by the discovery of 10-year-old Amy Rachel Sholes in the village of Kell. Kell's population was half that of Ina, and just 30 minutes away. On July 1st, 1987, the Sholes family dog, Biscuit, wandered away from home. Amy's 13-year-old brother, Ryan, went out looking for the dog, but had no luck. Ryan figured that since he was out, he would stop at his grandfather's house to visit. After hours passed, Amy went into town to look for Ryan and Biscuit, since neither had returned. Biscuit eventually found his way home, but Amy never came back. She was last seen around 9 p.m. on the corner of 4th and Jefferson Street. The following morning, an oil worker found her body eight miles south of the town, alongside a rural road in an oil field. Amy was lying face down, nude, and covered in dirt. A shoe print marked her back. Her clothing was scattered and thrown alongside the road, 17 feet away. On the right side of her neck, her spinal cord was exposed through a gaping wound. The pool of blood around her body made it clear to authorities that she was murdered in this very spot. The coroner's findings further identified the brutality Amy faced. On July 3rd, Dr. Nuremberg reported these findings. Three hemorrhages in the skull and one in her vocal cords, a fractured rib, a torn liver and rectum, and much more. The doctor placed her time of death between 9.30 and 11.30 p.m. He concluded that Amy was sodomized, beaten, strangled and then slashed at the throat. Her perpetrator had stepped on her body afterwards to speed up the blood pooling around her, to essentially kill her faster. The only solid evidence police had, other than the shoe prints and tire marks, were two pubic hairs, dog hairs, and fibers, all found on Amy's body. On July 13th, Ten days after the autopsy was released, the Daily Republican Register printed this headline Sex slaying Cast pal over village of Kell. The town was so small and apparently so peaceful that they didn't have a police force. They relied only on the sheriff's office to handle crime. That, and the entire town of Kell, was about to change. Immediately, a group of 130 residents in the town and surrounding areas met to organize a volunteer watch group. The village was angry and fearful. Police already checked into to more than 500 leads. Four days later, that number would double, and a $5,000 reward was announced. By October of that year, eight officers were working full-time on the case, and the reward was sitting at $15,000. But the number of calls and tips were dwindling, and the lead investigator stated, We still have no solid evidence. With no new leads, Amy Schultz faded away from the headlines, as investigators were still baffled, and community members tried to move on. However, as brutal of a murder as it was, it was still pale in comparison to what was to come just half an hour away in the town of Ina. Russell Dardine and Ruby Cowling wed in July of 1979. Both would go by their middle names, Keith and Elaine. For the next six and a half years, Keith would work for the city of Mark Carmel as a Class A water operator. Around 1985, he would move to the town of Ina for work, leaving Elaine and his infant son Peter behind. After becoming employed at the inner-city water system, Elaine and Peter joined Keith. The following year, the family bought a mobile home and rented out the land it was resting on, just south of Ina. According to most of the townsfolk, the Dardines were a tight-knit model family. They attended the community Halloween costume parties consecutively and won prizes both years. In 86, the family dressed up as the Wizard of Oz. In a photo from that day, Keith is the Tin Man, dressed in a silver button-up shirt, a silver bin on his head, and adorned with a paper heart yarn necklace. Silver paint covers his entire face, even his large, bushy mustache. Two-year-old Peter is the Scarecrow. He's in face paint, a plaid button-down, and a straw hat. Holding him is Elaine, dressed in a homemade, cowardly lion costume. Her face is painted as well, with whiskers and a dark nose. The following year, they dressed up as the Ghostbusters. The Dardines were also active in their local Baptist church. Keith would sing, and Elaine would play the piano. The family regularly visited CJ's new and used store. The owner stated, quote, if I could say anything that really summed up this family, they were a nice couple. Lloyd and Ann Settle owned the land on which the Dardines lived. Their children would often play with Peter Dardine, but eventually the playdates decreased. Quote, We saw, I guess, less of him, because of that miserable swing shift he was on. Referring to Keith's 11 p.m. starts. In the spring of 1987, Elaine started working part-time as a secretary at an office supply store. Around that same time, she became pregnant with their second child, a little girl. As the Dardines expanded their family, they weren't blind to the increasing violence in Jefferson County. After the shocking murder of 10-year-old Amy Schultz, Keith started to regret ever moving his family to Ina. Shortly thereafter, the Dardines put up their home for sale, and hung the sign in one of their windows. On the weekend of November 15th, Keith's mother, Joanne, and her husband traveled 80 miles from Mount Carmel to visit them. Keith apparently told her that he was sorry that he ever moved to Ina, and that he planned on moving his family back to Mount Carmel soon, whether he had a job lined up or not. He explained that the town was too violent, but he didn't elaborate further. This is the last time Joanne would see her son and her loved ones alive. The preceding day, Keith failed to pick up a check from work. This was unusual, but it wasn't a cause for concern. The following Tuesday night, he failed to report for his 11pm shift. It's been reported that the family was last seen alive roughly five hours earlier, between 5 and 6 p.m. This was said by an investigator, however, there was no further details about the sighting. Keith Dardine was never late to work. He usually arrived early. His manager Larry was concerned, so he ventured to the couple's home to see if everything was alright. Larry knocked on the door. But no one answered. He attempted to open it, but the door was apparently locked. He left and later notified Jefferson County Sheriff's office in the subsequent evening. A second call would come in this time from Joanne at five thirty p m She told officers that she was concerned about the well-being of her son and daughter-in-law. Joanne and her husband made the long journey to Ina and brought with them a spare key. Authorities would meet them there. When both groups arrived, they immediately noticed that Keith's car, an 81 Plymouth, was missing. When police entered the trailer, they found a grisly scene that would ultimately haunt them for the rest of their lives. It would immediately spawn theories that it was the work of a satanic, ritualistic cult. Lying on the bed were the bodies of 30-year-old Elaine, 3-year-old Peter, and a premature baby girl. They weren't just lying on top of the bed. The killer, or killers, had made sure to tuck them in. Elaine and Peter were both bound and gagged with duct tape. A bloody bat was presumed to be the murder weapon, a gift for Peter the year prior. It was apparently shoved inside Elaine's body. Elaine was only seven months pregnant at the time, but had been beaten so badly she'd gone into labor. The baby, who would later be named Casey, was born alive and weighed just three pounds, 13 ounces. Casey was killed similarly to her mother and her brother, only moments after coming into the world. Keith Dardine was nowhere to be found, and instantly declared a person of interest. Hours later, at 1.30 a.m., Keith's red car was found 11 miles away south of their home, parked near the Benton police station. Papers printed that morning stated, Police are seeking a rural Ina man for questioning in the slaying of his wife and three-year-old son. The cause of death was not disclosed. There were many reasons police jumped on Keith as a potential suspect, other than statistics showing it's most likely the husband. At the Dardines' home, there were no signs of forced entry. Nothing was stolen or missing. And the suspect took their time cleaning up the blood before they left. With all these factors... Surely Keith Dardeen had massacred his family, right? Wrong. Around 6 p.m. that Thursday evening, hunters stumbled upon the remains of a man in a wheat field over a mile from the Dardines' home. They alerted maintenance workers at Rend Lake College nearby, who in turn called authorities. Sheriffs were surprised and horrified at the sight. 29-year-old Keith Dardine had been shot three times in the head. His genitals had also been severed off. Authorities tried to keep a tight lip about the details of the murder. Not only would it send the locals into a panic, but they also didn't have a clue who could have done this. Robert Lewis, a coroner in Franklin County, attributed Keith's death to massive cerebral trauma but he wouldn't disclose what caused it. Further, he stated, quote, I wish I could, but I can't. We're not trying to hide anything from the public. But the injuries sustained by Mr. Dardine were different enough from the injuries sustained by the other family members, that only the killer or someone involved with the investigation would know. This is the reason we don't want to go into any depth on them. Lewis urged the community not to panic, because the case is being handled by, quote, some of the best criminal investigators in the state. He added, quote, It is a savage crime. I have been associated with the coroner's office for more than a dozen years, and this is the worst I've seen. Someone either had a strong dislike for this family, or we have a first-class nut loose in the area. Investigators were hoping to solve this brutal crime quickly. 25 investigators formed a task force, combining Jefferson and Franklin County, as well as the Illinois State Police. Interviews were conducted, and 740 individual pieces of information were received. Each one could be a new lead. But it doesn't matter how many hands you have on deck, if you don't have the proper tools to keep an investigation afloat. They had no motive, no solid suspects, no fingerprints, no DNA. The who and the why are the most critical questions, and they weren't even close to answering them. Investigators believed that the Dardines were killed around the same time, but why bludgeon three of them and shoot the father? then dump his body and park his car miles away by a police station. There were so many unanswered questions. The day before Christmas Eve, the relatives of Keith announced a $10,000 reward for information leading to an arrest and conviction of those responsible. Additionally, if the information was turned over to officers by midnight on Christmas, they would double the reward. Keith's sister, Anita, read this statement to the press. It's Christmas, and someone has taken the lives of my only brother, my sister-in-law, my only niece, that we were so joyfully awaiting the arrival of, and my only nephew. Please make Christmas more bearable for us, by turning in any information you have. Jefferson County Sheriff Bob Pitchford at the same press conference stated this, Each and every one of us has a conscience. I believe with this amount of money that is available, this will open up some consciences. It is a hard case. We will solve this case. On the one-year anniversary of the family's death in 1989, the reward still stood at $30,000. Today, that would be worth around $76,000. As years passed, the Dardines slowly faded from the headlines. Their case was usually mentioned at least once every year. However, Keith's mother Joanne refused to let their memory burn out. She would call police almost every day. Five years after the murders, she was featured on the front page of the Evansville Courier Press. She's pictured at a table with her hands clasped staring longingly at framed photos of Keith, Elaine, and Peter. The caption reads, Joanne Dardine has waged a personal crusade to help find the killer of her son and his family. One of the only quote of hers included states, How can anyone have hurt that sweet little boy so terribly? The article goes on to mention the theories behind the murders, that initially ran rampant in the community. Cult killings, witness protection programs, or a drug deal gone wrong. Investigators initially brought in an expert on cults, but they found no reason to believe that was the motive. Drugs, specifically a small amount of marijuana, was found in the Dardines' trailer. However, when police ran tests, They all came back negative for THC, leading them to believe that the killer, or killers, had left the drugs behind. Police repeatedly had to debunk rumors that Keith was in the Witness Protection Program, and fortunately, theories of a satanic cult were brushed off. Police have speculated, though, that Elaine may have been the target of an obsessed man, whom she rejected. This could explain why the killing was so personal and sexual in nature, why Keith's genitals were literally cut off and his body dumped. However, Detective Anthis stated that almost any scenario can fit the crime. It's like taking a trip without a roadmap. Sometimes it feels like you're just wandering around. It'll come together, as long as we keep it alive in the eyes of the public. I am a firm believer that someone out there knows something. I don't want the guy who did this out walking the streets, but I also want to solve this for her. She deserves to know who did this. I think it will finally give the peace she needs. Now, for a moment, we're gonna jump back into the case of Amy Scholes. Fortunately, her killer would be caught just several months after the murder took place. Police established that the tire prints matched just two models manufactured in North America at the time. It could only be one of the two, a Cooper Falls Persuader or the Cooper Dean Polaris. They also determined that the shoe prints were that of a boot sold at Kmart, called the Texas Steer. This information was entered into the FBI's VICAP Nationwide Database, which stands for Violent Crimes Apprehension Program. Illinois State Police received a call from authorities at Glacier National Park in Montana. There, a man named Cecil Sutherland had been arrested for shooting at the park's rangers. His front right tire was a Cooper Falls persuader, and in his possession, were a pair of Texas steer boots. Because of the VICAP, police were able to connect a man to a murder that occurred months prior, over 1,700 miles away. It was also discovered that at the time of the murder, Cecil was living in Dix, Illinois, just miles from where Amy's body was found. On October 28, 1987, Cecil was indicted by a federal grand jury. The charges included two counts of assault with intent to commit murder and seven counts of assault with a deadly weapon. Cecil apparently wasn't just firing at park rangers. He was firing at any motorists that drove by. On June 10th, 1988, he was sentenced to 15 years in federal prison for the crimes that took place in Montana. This was perfect for investigators because it gave them plenty of time to build a case against Cecil for a much more brutal crime, the murder of Amy shoals In May of the following year, a second trial began. Cecil Sutherland was charged with three counts of first-degree murder, aggravated kidnapping, and aggravated sexual assault. A family member of his who was 16 years old at the time also testified to being sodomized by Cecil a decade ago. A jury found him guilty of all the charges, and on June 12th, they sentenced him to death. Amy's father, Dennis, stated, I hope this sends a message to those who perpetrate crimes against children. I hope they find out that this is what will happen to them. The following year, Dennis founded the Amy Shoals Child Advocacy Center after he learned that nearly half a million children are reported as victims of sexual abuse each year. The center is based in Mount Vernon, Illinois, and is still active to this day. In 2000, the Illinois Supreme Court granted Sutherland a new trial, citing that his defense lawyer failed to present all available evidence. This trial would ultimately have the same result, because this time, forensic DNA analysis was much more advanced. The dog hairs found on Amy's body was linked to Cecil's black lab. The pubic hairs found were also linked to Sutherland, and the carpet fibers matched his vehicle. This time, Sutherland asked for the death penalty. However, in July of 2011, the state of Illinois abolished the death penalty and commuted Cecil's sentence to life in prison without parole. As far as I know, Cecil is still alive, staring at the inside of some prison walls. Now we're going to jump back into the Dardeen family murders. In 2000, the most solid lead yet. Would come to investigators over a decade since the killings took place. That year, a serial killer named Tommy Lynn Sells was arrested for the murder of two young Texas girls, 13 year old Kayleen Harris and 10 year old Crystal Searles. Both had their throats cut. After Tommy's arrest, he claimed to have committed over 70 unsolved murders including the Dardine family. Only 22 of those have been confirmed. Joanne was elated by the news that someone had finally confessed. Quote, It feels like a big ton of bricks have been lifted off of me. I've always believed it would be solved. However, as investigators prodded Tommy for more details, his claims fell apart. First of all, he had three different versions of what transpired. In one, he claimed to have been hitchhiking on the road when Keith pulled over and offered him a ride. In another, Tommy met him at a pool hall or a truck stop and was invited back to Keith's home. In the third version, he apparently knocked on the front door, then forced his way inside. In two of these versions, Tommy claimed that he was offered a threesome, and that Keith made homosexual advances on him that threw him into a blind rage. But this doesn't make sense for a plethora of reasons. There was no evidence that Keith or Elaine was having extramarital affairs, or that Keith was gay. It's also clear that Keith was very protective of his family, and would never pick up a hitchhiker or bring a stranger willingly into his home. A longtime friend named Bill gave some hindsight. Before the Dardines were killed, the murder of Amy Shoals had shaken them to the core. Keith had become so paranoid that one night, when a ten-year-old girl asked to use their phone, he refused to let her in. Bill stated. Quote, If he wouldn't let a young girl in to use the phone, he wouldn't let a 22-year-old man in. If that story didn't make it evident enough that Tommy Sells was lying, he also got many of the details wrong. He would blurt out the wrong answers, and then continue until he eventually got it right. There was one tiny detail, though, that convinced investigators that Sells was guilty a set of watermelon ceramics that the Dardines had in their home. That was the one detail that only investigators and close friends and family of the Dardines knew. It sealed the case for them. A man named Bill Clutter conducted the interview and stated, quote, Cells told me that those victims were targeted, that if they searched the woods near the trailer, they would have found a pile of beer cans, where he had waited and watched. I believe he went into the trailer and took control of Elaine and the three-year-old son, duct-taped their hands, and waited for Keith to come home. For him to know that, he had to have been inside the house. I am convinced that he is the Dardine killer, that one detail that he was able to give. While Jefferson County authorities believed they had solved the case, the state prosecution attorney did not. After reviewing all the evidence, he declined to charge Tommy Lynn Sells for the murders, citing that there were too many inconsistencies between what he claimed and the actual facts of the case. Four years before he'd be put to death in the state of Texas, Tommy Lynn Sells would give an interview published in May of 2010. He told journalist Becky Malkovich, quote, I can't swear I'll give you the answers you want, but I'll try. I know people got their doubts. In that interview, Tommy begins to retell the Dardine murders and what supposedly happened on that November night in 87. I was just passing through. I had stopped off at that truck stop before and I rode the trains through here before." Tommy claimed that Keith invited him back to his home for a meal, and on the ride home is when Keith made a sexual advance. Quote, then some bogus shit happened, right? And then I left. And then I came back and did a little watching and waited for the right time. And then all hell broke loose. Tommy claimed to have killed Keith first, and eventually went back for the family. Quote, I don't have an answer for you. I can't answer it. If you've ever been that pissed, then it's hard to, you know. One of the Texas Rangers said it was due to self-preservation because Elaine Dardine knew who I was. But I don't think that was part of it. I was just so pissed off that I took it to the maximum limit. Rage don't have a stop button. Becky then asked, even if the victim is a child? To which he responded, let's understand this, murder is murder. If I murdered you, would you not want the same justice that the police officer gets if a police officer is murdered? Capital murder for them, just regular murder for you. That's crap. If you murder a newborn, or a 90 year old, murder's murder. Is murder. You can't classify, say, one is worse than the other. I don't even remember half the murders i done. I think one of the things helped me to survive all my life, even with all the sexual molestation and beatings. And when something happens, I stop thinking about it. It's over. And And that's like with a lot of my crimes. Once it's over, I stopped believing I was a part of it. Because they say I've done some pretty gross stuff. And some of it I can say, Yeah, I remember some of that. But some of it, I'm not so sure. And there's been so many. How do you tell one from another? They say there's no physical evidence tying me to the Dardines. But there wasn't for any of them. Because they wasn't looking for them. I moved. I was always transient. If you want to believe different, I ain't going to argue the case. Texas will kill me first. Joanne wants to talk to me. If she wants to come here and talk to me, scream at me, yell, kick me, hit me, she should have that right. But sorry ain't going to cut it. So what is there to say? I could tell her sorry every day for the rest of my life. It's not going to stop her pain. And one thing I do know about is pain, and it doesn't go away. I don't know if I could understand forgiveness. I don't think so. I could have been stopped several times. I was arrested with the blood on me from the Kentucky case, the murder of a 13-year-old girl. And all they did was put me in the drunk tank and let me out the next day. wasn't six hours, and I was back out on the street with blood on me. How close does that get to stopping me? They think death is the ultimate punishment, but death is not. It's living with this every day is the ultimate punishment. With what I've done, it don't go away. What's happened to me don't go away. What I've done don't go away. It twists my mind. Every day I wake up with it. I go to bed with it. As I say, Death is a welcome relief. If me being killed is what you want, I'm okay with it. You're not going to hurt my feelings, and I'm not going to put up a fuss to save my own life. Because in my opinion, I think it's not worth saving. When I was seven years old, they didn't think I was worth saving. So how am I supposed to think any different? I have a lot of issues with God. Here's my biggest. He wasn't there when I was 7 years old, screaming out to him, asking this dude to stop doing everything he did to me, and I lived through that hell for years. So I'm not saying there's a god up there who's going to protect me, or you, because in my view, there's just not. There's supposed to be such love, and there's not. If they want to believe when I die there's a welcome committee for me when I get to hell, then that's what they can believe but I just don't quite see it that way. I believe I'll be back to bite somebody else in the ass sooner or later. Joanne never got to have a conversation with her son's alleged killer. Tommy Lynn Sells was executed in April of 2014. And by that point, Joanne didn't believe he was the true killer. In an interview from that year, she stated, I know that the things he said do not match up with what I know about Keith. A lot of people think it's done and over with, but to me, it's not. One of the people Joanne is referring to is Sheriff's Captain John Kemp. Kemp was one of the investigators to interview cells in Texas. In our minds, we have enough confidence to believe that he did it. He was completely wired up differently from anyone I've ever come across. Investigators believed they had finally got their man. But like Joanne, they didn't believe his story about exactly what went down. According to Kemp, Tommy would often shift the narratives in order to blame the victims for what happened. This story is a lot similar to the serial killer Edward Surratt, the shotgun slayer. I did an episode on him a few months ago. During his last break-in, he tied up a family of three. Eventually, one of them managed to break free when he fell asleep and call 911. When Edward was arrested, he told investigators that the husband had met him on the beach and invited him to his home while making sexual advances. It turned out, of course, not to be true. It was just a random break-in and robbery. If Tommy Lynn Sells was the true killer, it's possible that he just mixed up the details with other crimes. He did, in fact, have 22 confirmed victims, and the one detail he did get right was one that only investigators knew, a stack of ceramic watermelons. This proved to them that Tommy Sells had been in the Dardines trailer. When I was looking into other murders he had committed, I found a story shockingly similar to the Dardines. 28-year-old Ina Court was recently divorced and lived alone with her 4-year-old son, Rory, in Forsyth, Missouri. For years, Ina worked at a local hospital before taking a job at a car wash. Rory was set to begin kindergarten in the fall. In the summer of 1985, a carnival came to town, which Ina and her son attended. On July 26th. It was the last time they were seen alive. Four days later, Ina's parents found their bodies in their home's living room. The two had been beaten to death with Rory's baseball bat, the same weapon that was used to kill Elaine Dardine and her children. Some papers reported that their throats had been slashed as well. Nothing had been stolen from the home and the motive was unclear. It wasn't until 2000 that Forsyth officials would make a connection. The last time Ina was seen alive, she was speaking to a carnival worker. Tommy Lynn Sells worked for that very carnival. County investigator Dan Swan traveled to Texas to interview Sells and confirm his suspicions. Sells was able to recall exactly what Ina was wearing the night she died and where she and Rory's body were found. This led them to believe that Tommy Sells was most likely their killer, but they didn't push for prosecution because Sells was already on death row and quote, we can only kill him once. They would also push back the date of execution, if they continue to charge him with additional murders the question still remains was tommy lonsells the dardeen's true killer or did he want to take accountability for as many murders as he could to tally up his number after all he confessed to killing 70 people but only 22 have been confirmed in january of this year A local St. Louis news station published an article titled, Gruesome murder of an Illinois family remains unsolved as the main suspect is executed. It states that Joanne, who's still alive, will be 84 years old soon. She's still hoping and praying she will live long enough to find closure. Hello, so I surprisingly have some extra info that is very important to this case. I just woke up like an hour ago and I already posted the episode, but I have to include this. So first side note, Tommy Lynn also confessed to the 1988 murders of Sherry and Megan Scherer. However, DNA evidence proved him wrong. It proved that he was lying about killing them. So this is a huge deal because if Tommy lied about one case, He could certainly lie about killing the Dardines. Now, this is the major thing. I came across this information accidentally really, really late last night, and it's from KFVS News. They interviewed Joanne and Captain Scott Burge, who is now in charge of the case. Burge told KFVS News that there are, quote, a lot of people that are persons of interest when I go through this. Referring to the twenty plus binders of evidence, so according to Joanne in twenty fifteen a police report was filed in the Dardines hometown of Mount Carmel. This is where Joanne lives. this is where she raised Keith. Apparently, it was found in a house hidden under some wallpaper, very disturbing writing about the murder of the Dardines. Joanne told the news quote, "I tried to talk to state police about it." Because they're the ones that come cut it out, and I couldn't get anything out of him. According to Captain Burge, the evidence is in storage, but it hasn't produced any new leads. I'm theorizing that the writing could have been like some local teenagers, but the fact that it's hidden under some old wallpaper is just very suspicious. We don't know what the message was, and we don't know how old the wallpaper was. But this information is definitely something. I really wish we knew more details. But the document that the news showed is very redacted. Now I'm going to play some additional comments from Keith's mother, sister, and friends. I always say I've
1: got through it because I've got God on my side. Is there ever a time when you just want to take a break? No. They told us in the beginning that uh, we need to keep the story out there. We need to keep it going. Ready? Yeah. Can you count? Keith's sister fears the crimes forever tied to her family name could be forgotten. I doubt, seriously, that the majority of the people in Mount Vernon even know who we are. I was the best man at their wedding, and it makes me kind of sad to think about it. I'm still numb to this day. I know I'm not the same person that I ever would have been. Keith's boss, he kept, he kept calling. That really scared me then. Knocked, no one answered, so then he went to the back door and he turned the doorknob and he just took the flashlight, shined in there, and he seen them. And I just went to the floor. I just was overwhelmed. It was, it was gut-wrenching to think that, you know, Elaine and Pete was dead, and it was gut-wrenching not knowing where Keith was. Where's your son? Where's your son? Well, I didn't know where he was, you know. I had no clue. They were such loving, caring people. It's hard to imagine how somebody can do something like that. I talked to him the next day, and then he told me about Tommy Lynn. Which at first I thought maybe he did, but the more came out, the more I realized he didn't. There's not anything out there that I haven't done. I have tried everything.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode and welcome to the outro where I talk about lighthearted true crime to lift the mood a little bit after what we just heard. So a woman in Wichita, Kansas was quickly identified after this crime went viral. She's been described as public enemy number two. On May 10th, 2022, the alleged poop entered a Mid-K Beauty supply store. She proceeded to pull down her pants in one of the aisles and defecate on some wigs. Officers stated, quote, The defecation was significant enough that eight wigs were destroyed as a result. The incident was captured on video surveillance, but for the good of all of you, we are not posting the footage of the offending fecal assault. After this, apparently the department started receiving so many calls and emails that the perpetrator could be Amber Heard. They had to put out a statement on social media, quote, We've already confirmed that this is not Amber Heard, so please stop calling and emailing that info. They also confirmed that the woman didn't use the wigs as toilet paper. She just used them as her toilet. The Wichita beauty store pooper has been identified, but her name has not been released. It's unknown if she's even been arrested. Alright, that is all for this week's episode, and again, thank you for listening. Don't forget to tune in next Tuesday for another episode. I hope you have a good morning, evening, or night. Goodbye.